This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson and joining me in the cave tonight are Her Satanic Majesty, Sally Christie. <laughs> welcome. And on the bass guitar, slow hand, Cerise Howard. Hi, Paul. <laughs> I don't know why I decided to trade solely in... I, I, I want to be called Her Satanic Majesty always from now on as my title. <laughs> Every week. Yeah, for me, slow hand is a bit of an Eric Clapton guitar vibe. That's yes. unfortunate. <laughs> I'm going to Google more bassists, clearly, yeah. is what I need to do. Everybody needs to Google more bassists. <laughs> Hot life hack tip right there for you people. <laughs> don't know why I decided to trade Solly in late 60s British rock idioms for your intro, but there you go. might become a thing. I'm not sure. Before we plunge into tonight's show, uh, it's been a custom of late for Cerise in particular, to pay tribute to film stars and filmmakers who have passed um, after living long and productive lives. And we've had a couple of losses this week. Uh, apparently, we lost Dom DeLuise over the weekend. Apparently. Um, I, I actually can't remember the last film I'd have seen him in or that he'd have contributed to, but he was a bit of a, a staple of certain 80s... Um, I, well, I, I cast my mind back to gems like the... Was it the best little whorehouse in Texas? Yes. Yep. Um, he must have been in the Cannibal Run films. He was Captain Chaos. Yes. Captain yeah, he was in Cannibal Run, yeah. Blazing Saddles. Yeah. He's a Mel Brooks yeah. contributor quite frequently. A as portly well. comic relief type mm. who was probably a lot smarter than most of his on-screen personas and who had, and still I believe, has brothers in the industry. Um, and sons. Sons? Uh, 21 Jump Street's Peter DeLuise. Oh, those sons. Yeah, fact, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> He was, um, yeah, no, he was. He was quite a uh, quite a big big deal in the the seventies and eighties, in particular. He also had. He was in like a comedy drama called Fatso with Anne Bancroft as well, which was mm. sort of a bit of a journey into leading man territory that unfortunately didn't really stick. But um, we farewell uh, Dom and his uh, contributions to both film and film outtakes, um, <laughs> as he did in the many Burt Reynolds films he starred in. Um, but I got to say, there was another death this week. Um, like I said earlier, we sort of, I guess, normally honour people who have like, passed after living long and productive lives, but I was a bit, as the kids say, shook to hear of the death of John Singleton last week from a stroke at the age of just 51. It was awful. Um, it, it's, uh, it's He, of course, uh, arrived on the filmmaking scene pretty much fully formed in 1991 with his um, debut film as writer-director, Boys in the Hood. I didn't realise that that was his debut feature. Really? I just assumed that, that he had, you know, there were features before that because it's excellent and to come out with that as your first film is pretty incredible. And pretty much straight out of film yeah. school. Yep. Um, he was, of course, mentored by Spike Lee and, and proved a mentor himself to other directors uh, coming up in the industry. Um, he was the first African-American and the youngest person to ever be nominated for the Best Director Oscar. Um, he went on to direct, somewhat maybe less auspiciously, Janet Jackson in her film debut in uh, Poetic Justice along with Tupac Shakur uh, before directing um, ur- urban dramas like Higher Learning, Rosewood and Baby Boy. 
and also made what I think is a rather, the rather underrated Shaft reboot from 2000. With I haven't seen it. No, nor have I. Yeah, it's actually, I haven't co- watched it. It's cool. It's really fun. Samuel like it, L. Jackson? Yep, yeah. Okay. Versus Christian Bale. Oh, okay. I'm and in. I'm with sold. Jeffrey Wright as this crazy uh, Latino gang leader called Peoples Hernandez. It's like it's a <laughs> lot of fun, and it's really slick and over the top. I think it's very cool. Um, but as I said, he was he was an inspiration to so many young filmmakers, both black and otherwise, and he'll sorely be missed. Mm. So. On tonight's show, we'll get frocked up and head up north to attend the new film from the writer, uh, from the director and star of The Sapphires, Top End Wedding. We'll also go back to 1956 for this week's retro title as we plan the perfect heist with the film noir that launched Stanley Kubrick's career, The Killing. But first, let's head to Iran to look at Jafar Panahi's Three Faces. Now, no, I'm not talking about the famed Melbourne Gay Club of the 1990s. <laughs> But the new film from Iran... You don't say. <laughs> There's a callback. Uh, but the new film from Iranian director Jafar Panahi, who, despite being sentenced to a 20-year ban from filmmaking, has managed to direct four films in the first nine years of said ban. He's such a scamp. All of which are currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image until May 23rd. As with all the films uh, Panahi has made post-ban, he appears in the film playing himself, as he and the famous Iranian actress Benaz Jafari, also playing herself, receive a troubling video message from a young girl in a remote village, played by Mazia Rezae, who is playing a version of herself, um, who, after explaining that she's been accepted to a prestigious acting conservatory but forbidden by her repressive family to attend, seems to end the message by committing suicide. But Miss Jafari isn't so sure. She believes that Marzier has cannily edited the footage and is actually still alive and that the message is a cry for help. Panahi believes it's legit but agrees to, dr- to drive Miss Jafari to the girl's village to look for her. Will they find Marzier alive? What does all this have to do with rural Iranian attitudes towards actors or the history of Iranian cinema pre- and post-revolution? Sally... Did you enjoy this road trip into the history of Iranian cinema and artistic expression, or did you find, or this, oh yeah, or did this find you thumbing a ride the other way? Uh, as if I'm going to thumb a ride the other way with this film. That was excellent. <laughs> I know it's pretty hard to write. <laughs> a counterpoint to that one, but like... the opening to this film is so powerful, and yeah, that really sort of blew me away. Um, it's such an interesting sort of comment on, I guess, his imprisonment. We kind of see him going around in circles in this car. Where's he going? And, you know, which is sort of reflective of his situation in real life. But um, I did, I found this really compelling. I also, the seriousness of the situation at the start of the film with the um, young girl who we're not sure if she's committed suicide or not, I, I really liked how that sort of then becomes quite brushed over mm. and there's this kind of bickering about what's um, if it's been edited or if it hasn't been and that kind of becomes the key focus and not necessarily whether <laughs> she's actually died because that really heavy beginning to this film, it was like where can this go from here but mm. be something that's really dark and it's not. It's, um, yeah, really quite upbeat and funny. Upbeat. And <laughs> it's so weird, yeah. yeah. How, have it's you... like how do you go from that that's so bleak to being something that is almost quite uplifting. And really charming. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it's an extraordinary presence on screen. Uh, there's always been a, a very rich humanism in his films, and it comes across in his persona, even though his persona is possibly subject, like everything in his narrative universes, even before he was banned from making films, uh, everything has been... Um, uh, slightly subject to being able to be viewed through a few different layers, really. His his is a very richly layered cinema. It's always been very interested in the lot in life of women, and he, he made a, a, you know, one of my favourite films um, with a, an ensemble female cast, and that's Offside, this extraordinary film he made um, about some women who just simply want to see a soccer match. They're all soccer obsessives and are desperately keen to see a World Cup match between Iran and I think it's Bahrain. And that film blurs, as so many of his films do, um, and this one more than ever, this new one, uh, blurs fiction and non-fiction by, in that case, uh, the, the match that they're trying to break into is actually happening as he's shooting it. And they're genuinely not allowed into the stadium because there's a law saying that women cannot attend uh, football matches. It's a man's domain, and they, they resort to all sorts of trickery to try to get into the stadium. And it's incredible and funny and, and warm. And he's he's always had that just uh, almost peerless talent, I think, mm. for driving warmth and uh, sympathy for the quite unreasonable lot in life women have over there and, and other people who suffer unreasonably uh, under a restrictive regime. And in this new film, trying to unpeel all the layers in it, I, I don't even know... Well, I know where to begin. I don't know where to end. Yeah. At, at the very outset, and we don't see him for quite a long time in the film. He's driving, but we see the actress he's driving who's very upset with him. She suspects that he may even have engineered this whole situation... <laughs> to get her into a new film that he is of course not allowed to make <laughs> shortly after that he actually gets a phone call berating him from his mother who <laughs> it, who is pretty keen to know whether he's making another film or not and of course he fibs to her and I just don't know how meta that fib is whether he's genuinely lying to her in the moment that's a real phone call mm. or whether it's just a fib within the universe that of the you know this film's narrative and so on and so on as it goes through this really engrossing and and um i think actually really important film and she's getting calls about abandoning her set to go yes. on this search as well yeah. it's like we've only got this data shoot why aren't you here it's like again is that really happening or is it well I, yeah i who knows and, and there, there are things here I, I need to do more homework on probably mm. many people who see this film might feel that whether they know much about Panahi or not before seeing the film and it certainly helps if you know something of his plight but just uh, the rural areas they go into he, he gets upbraided by one of the first people he stops to talk to for not speaking Turkish Yeah, mm. and I, I don't quite grasp the significance of that but he was actually told off for not speaking his native tongue that was actually the, uh, the yeah. yeah how he was told off, and I, I sense there's there's a lot in the mix here that is perhaps a bit more opaque to say Western audiences than it might be. Well, I'd I'd, I'd say to domestic audiences, but this is not a film he could possibly have made for a domestic audience because he's not allowed to make <laughs> films. Does anyone I, I might be being naive with asking this? So he's released four films since he's had this ban imposed on him. How was that happening and what are any... Is anyone aware of the repercussions of this, this? Or, you know, how is he getting this media out there without... Oh, there's a great story for that first film. Oh, which yeah. He even called This Is Not A Film to highlight the fact that he's not making films. 
which he is, is in fact making. And that one was smuggled to the Cannes Film Festival on a USB stick hidden in a cake. <laughs> what flavour cake? I don't is know. That's <laughs> the truth. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I, I heard that from the Australian distributor. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And it's it's interesting. Like I, I keep imagining this Hogan's Heroes style situation. <laughs> like they just keep Jafar. Are you keep yeah. doing and like shaking their fist at him. Like how do they not know? That yeah, that, they're premiering thing, across like... the world. I mean, they can't be shown in Iran. Yeah. So they never show up there. But. Overseas, like they're, they're opening Khan, they're winning yeah, prizes. He's, he's a big like, deal. How yeah. do people not? Well, he's even starring in them. So it's not like someone, <laughs> who, let's say someone in Iran in government got a hold of this film. There's no mistaking him in it. <laughs> oh, he's, it wasn't me. It wasn't yeah, me. Yeah, it wasn't no, me. This yeah. could have been directed by anybody. <laughs> he can't give the shaggy yeah. defence. Yeah. yeah. And and what's more, he's in, he gets more brazen with each film. Like the first one's in his house. The second one's in his house. Ha- he's on, on a beachside in a house he owns, I believe. The third one, he's driving around pretending he's a taxi driver. And now he's driving around further out with an actress getting out of the car and interacting with people like Mm. it seems like each one he takes another step further but i think you're right i think there's a lot of local um subtext here but i think even without a lot of that i think it's still really entertaining i was um the 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 premiere the screening that i saw was introduced by somebody who was a bit of an expert and demi guerra that's correct yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and she was talking about there's a there's a few things in there, particularly with the way that um, the Iranian, a lot of the uh, people in sort of rural Iranian areas and sort of older culture, I guess, disparage um, actresses and, and actors and call them entertainers. Mm-hmm. There's a line where somebody calls Bar- uh, Benaza an entertainer and she's like, oh, I haven't heard that for a while. Um, and it's almost like a lesser form, almost, you know, like next to stripping or something. I yeah, don't yeah. know. Well, like, well then, then that's reinforced when we hear tell of the... Uh, there's an older actress who was a star of films before the Iranian Revolution of 1979 who was, horror of horrors, somebody who danced on film. I mean, she's really considered somebody who's morally transgressive and is uh, a pariah in a, a little village in the middle of nowhere. And that, that's really telling. And we, we don't see her. Well, in, we can't. Because no. her, her name's yeah. Shadzeh? Yeah. Yeah, and, and she, her uh, visage is still not able to be shown in Iran. So that's why she's always filmed from far away. So yeah. uh, there's a character who stays in her house for a while and we only see her house in a very long shot. And then we see her sort of walking back and forth a little in this long shot and then we see another scene of her in a painting later on from the back making images herself but um yes not photographic ones and not of her self and there's that there that's running through the film too this this um thing of actors who were banned uh, pre-revolution actors who were banned post-revolution like there's quite an amusing scene regarding a movie poster and a foreskin um, <laughs> which involves uh, somebody talking about one of these actors as well and that's the thing that like yeah it is really engaging and 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 entertaining and and Jafar Panahi and Benaz Jafari make a make a fun double act they're always kind of needling each other and yeah I thought they were great together their chemistry was excellent I loved how they bounced off each other could yeah. be Albert mm. Finney and Audrey Hepburn yep absolutely it isn't but I mean yeah, it's, it's a nice <laughs> thought a remake <laughs> two on the road <laughs> the um this is an interesting interpretation yeah, of two in the road. Done, yeah. Uh, but uh, back more on the, the topic cult- again. The important cultural aspect. Yeah. Yes, Reese. Yes. Well, the, 
This business of suicide that is very explicitly um, actually shown, whether it's real or not at the very beginning, Mm -hmm. is something that other parts of this film reminded me of another film concerning that subject, which had to come at it extremely delicately and in the end very reflexively. Abbas Kiristami's film Taste of Cherry, which may have been a Palm d'Or winner at Cannes mm. back in the 90s. And Kiristami and Panahi were closely associated. I think Kiristami helped mentor Panahi and may have written a script for The White Balloon, one of his earlier gorgeous films. And Taste of Cherry is all about someone driving a car around the Iranian countryside trying to find people to help him, to, I think to bury him when after he suicides. And no one wants a bar of it because you can't even speak of suicide. It's that big a taboo. And that this film so brazenly opens with it, I think, tells you that this was never meant for an Iranian audience, because of course it couldn't be, because he's not allowed to make films in Iran. But it's so powerful, even outside of that context. Just uh, it's uh, the imagery in that opening sequence, all filmed as if on a mobile phone and probably genuinely on a, a mobile, is um, yeah, it's 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 tough. It's yeah, it's, it is. Yeah really really difficult opening and that's why it was i was so surprised that it felt like it was going up from there because it was so dark it's one heck of a tone switch um and there's beautiful there's lots of beautiful symbolism in here i mean there's particularly the last shot which kind of says it's the thesis in one image Mm. really about the way women are heading and the way men iranian men ahead you know aren't heading um and some really lovely little um grace notes here and there um i yeah i I think this is every bit as good as his last film as 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 um tehran taxi and i really want to go back and see i've wanted to see offside for years offside's just magnificent and so his earlier films too the circle is another wonderful film um crimson gold is that yeah i haven't seen crimson gold but yeah. i heard that that was pretty terrific and and the white balloon is gorgeous it's it's just a, a little girl i think uh, if memory serves she's just looking for her goldfish <laughs> and and the temptation there uh, it's been some interesting writing over the years about iranian film as viewed by westerners and the westerners always looking to project allegorical meaning on these stories and sometimes no doubt it is there and other times maybe it really is just a girl looking for her goldfish but um you know these days panahi doesn't have to really work in metaphor he's not making films for the domestic audience it really is actually for more for people like us to to marvel at but somehow i still wish he was freer to make yes anything he wanted because he's a magnificent filmmaker and i'd i'd love to see him make another offside or something of that caliber ambition and and reality Mm. and that i mean this film feels very real but it's so unreal that it's it's unreality is very real as well if you know what (laughs) i mean oh it's complex so layered what an onion this film is but so accessible as well his films um so if you want to catch three faces or his previous films made under the band being this is not a film closed curtain and taxi they're all screening at melbourne's uh australian center for the moving image um as part of a retrospective until the 23rd of may you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia Let's gather our rogues gallery. Look, there's only one way to, to you know, counter a world of madness, and that's to gather our rogues gallery, pack our masks and guns, plan like clockwork, and head to rip off a racetrack with tonight's retro title, Stanley Kubrick's 1956 film noir, The Killing. Johnny Clay, played by the great Sterling Hayden, has never had much luck. 
But today, that's all going to change. With careful, clockwork, precise planning, he's planned the perfect robbery. He's lined up three men with straight-up jobs and clean records, a cop, a racetrack bartender and a betting window teller, as well as a wrestler and a sharpshooter, to execute a perfectly timed scheme to relieve a racetrack of $2 million in cash and get away clean, at which point Johnny plans to marry his girlfriend, retire to a simpler life and hang it all up for good. But the meek window teller's scheming wife, her lover and the fickle finger of fate all have it in for our unsuspecting gallery of rogues. Cerise, did you find this a surefire winner by several lengths or a nobbled nag from the bullet of a sniper who looks remarkably like a 1950s Nicolas Cage? Yeah, that guy, Timothy Carey. Well, one of the great character actors, one of the great faces. Uh, Which this film is full of. It yeah. is. Oh, yeah. Between him and uh, the, the, I think, very seldom cast character actor who played the very unlikely Russian named uh, Maurice. I, I, I've never heard of a Russian wrestler <laughs> named Maurice before, but... <laughs> But he, he looked like the prototype for George the Animal Steel. <laughs> exactly. Very, yeah. He was a real wrestler, wasn't he? He must have been. He yeah, I think he was a, a wrestler and a chess player. And wow, a chess player. Yeah, he was actually that combination. Yeah, that was that's his combo, is a wrestler and a chess player. He said never Col- the twain. Cola Quariani. He right. was known by the ring, ring name Nicholas Quariani or Nick the Wrestler. Mm. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, yeah, Georgian professional wrestler and a chess player. Yeah. And named Maurice in this film, which is that doesn't match the accent he has at all. This film is so much fun. It is so fast. Mm-hmm. It's uh, there's something very, very contemporary about it. Uh, it, it. It yes, it's a film noir. It's very much of a of its genre. It's full of all of the tropes and has a fabulous femme fatale and a really wonderful Patsy. And watching the dynamic between those two is so much fun. Watching Elisha Cook uh, Jr. Yes, yeah, just crumble constantly from the badgering he receives <laughs> from the, the woman with the most remarkably um, stable hair. It's, <laughs> I know that, that excellent so sculpt- scene <laughs> when she got she just got out of bed, and I was like, yeah. "Gee, I wish my hair looked like that when I yeah. just got out of bed." Marie Windsor, yeah, she's amazing at this. Oh, incredible! This film was nineteen fifty-six. Yeah, and yet uh, the production code wasn't that relaxed at this point, and yet there's some extraordinarily contemporary uh, elements just matter-of-factly included in it. Uh, A double bed. Yeah. Not that um, uh, Patsy and Femme Fatale would have spent a lot of time there. What were the characters' (laughs) names again? Sherry Sherry and George. And and George, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but just that that was matter-of-factly in shot was interesting. Yeah. there's, uh, I mean, that's really violent. The killing of the title. Of, yes, they're going to try to make a killing. We know this is vernacular, but ultimately, I mean, this is a really bloody film, mm. and it's just hard to imagine that the U.S. censors didn't have any troubles with it. But Paul, you might know rather more than I. Did this go through the studio system, or was this a, actually an indie? It was an indie that yes. was picked up by United Artists because it failed like quite badly when it came out didn't it it did it did uh, commercially but I don't think it did critically because it caught the notice of Kirk Douglas who Mm -hmm. then hired Kubrick to direct Paths of Glory and the rest was history but yeah but it's the kind of film you could only make outside the system but yet somehow United Artists picked it up and managed to release it through the system Um, and it's so like it's non-linear structure is something like we did not see in Hollywood cinema at that time. Like, mm. keep the, the fact it's, you know, going back and forth. 
this might be the tightest. I, I, I often call this the tightest film I've ever seen. Like, there is not an inch of fat. The thing does not stop moving. It is... Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. That's one thing that I really love about this movie is how tight it is and what a neat little package it is and how every minute of it works perfectly. It's quite stunning. Mm. Like, it's 85 minutes and it's just... It has two... Like, film... I've seen films with two-and-a-half-hour storylines that have got less story than this. And it's it's almost like... Uh, it's almost like a ro- it's almost like a heist the way it's constructed you know it's like we're going to do this we're going to do this but before this you need to do this and then we'll do that and do that but before this you do that and then you need to be here and you go here and with that kind of patter and it's um, so Kubrick wrote the screenplay um, Kubrick to this point had made just two self-financed films um, Fear and Desire which was shot for six grand but finished for 40 and then killer's kiss which was a noir uh which was made for seventy-five thousand, and was a, a lot less kind of elegant than this and kubrick had written the screenplay to killer's kiss and for the killing he adapted lionel white's um crime novel clean break but he hired another crime novelist by the name of jim thompson to write the dialogue and jim thompson as you know is the writer of the killer inside me as well as many other works uh, you know a, a master of the sharp salty tongue and the dialogue shows it's just yeah like marie windsor and alicia cook jr are so great together and they were in very they're in a number of films together mm. um but this one they just the zingers she fires at him are just oh, amazing the first scene when she's on oh there god, god it's just incredible it's <laughs> it. just Taking it like punching man. And yes, his face just looks, you know, withered and yep, she's wonderful. <laughs> and he's like a, like an adult baby. Yep. Like he's yeah. just got these big eyes. Well, Sherry, if you feel that way, and, and he's, she's just playing him like a, a violin. And then you know, there's scenes like I mean, Sterling Hayden is in four of my top forty or fifty films of all time. Like he's in the god, he's the police captain in The Godfather. He's you know the mad author in The Long Goodbye. He's the um, uh, he's the the general, the crazed general in Doctor Strangelove, and this, and he's so it just he has a way with just putting together words in a lie, <laughs> like it's just just when he goes on that whole speech of like you know if you you know to Marie Windsor's character, um, if you can stay if you keep keep your trap shut and stay out of it, you can make money, plenty of money, and George will blow it all on you. He might buy himself a five cent cigar, and then she's like, well, what kind of wife would I be if I let him blow all his money on cigars? <laughs> It's just, I, I just adore this film. And it's almost, I, I, it's a little controversial, but for me, this is, I, I oscillate over the years. But this is almost my favourite Kubrick film. Really? I just think Mine's a clockwork orange. What's your series? Ooh. <laughs> could be Doctor Strange, love. Mm-hmm. But this is magnificent. Yeah, it is. And this is, uh, well, I've watched two Kubrick films in the last couple of years, each time for this show, and the other one was Barry Lyndon. And as elegant and gorgeous as that film is, it's not a patch on this, just mm. for fun. And mm. I, this film's just, it's so hard-boiled, um, and yet it has elegance. So some of these camera movements, these tracking yes. shots are extraordinary. I, I think, well, what Hitchcock did we look at last year? We looked at, God, I can't think of it now, but we looked at a really early Hitchcock, and um, it's interesting when you say, look at, an early work of a master and you see them finding their feet but yeah like you were saying Cerise with this there's so much greatness already established in this movie and just the storytelling in it like we all mentioned is superb but one thing that I think is another outstanding thing about this film is how 
it doesn't take audiences' intelligence for granted, which... Because, you know, we're getting narrative conventions developed back then, you know, there was a lot of explaining that happened, like the end of Psycho and things like that, whereas this film was like, no, the audience is smart enough to get this. We're going to tell this in a different, you know, a non-linear fashion, which still feels like really fast, still keeps you on your feet today. And, yeah, I think that's one of the strengths of this. And just the way that Kubrick can also jump around from genre to genre is just such a mark of a master. He's amazing. I don't imagine he could have been quite as obsessive as he would later become. I can't imagine he... Because he, this was an indie, after yeah. all, and he wouldn't have had the big budget behind him to to be the Kubrick he became famous for being later on, where he'd ask people to do the same thing a hundred times just to get the shot. And I don't know that was necessarily an exaggeration. Uh, here, the, the, there's, there's nothing here that feels like a shot out of place either, though. Mm. So he must have just been in, in the zone, mm. just... Uh, I feel like this was meticulously planned. Yeah. Like, that's... It's more so than, like... I think as his career went on, he became someone who'd find the film as the shooting went on Mm -hmm. and sort of like, I I don't know what I want, but I know it when I see it. Whereas I think at this stage of his career, he couldn't afford to be that. He hadn't discovered that yet. So it was all about almost Hitchcockian level of planning. Well, this is so so dialogue-heavy too. It's so fast, that dialogue, that you, you, you... probably couldn't get people to repeat these takes over and over again they'd be exhausted it's, it's, <laughs> it's text heavy but it, it doesn't feel at all it's no. so fast it's just zingers constantly flying back and forth and um you know trying to keep up with the dialogue and then trying to just do just just follow the the narrator pretty hard-boiled himself whoever that dragnet style yeah. you know and, and all the information you're fed that way which requires you to keep uh keep jumping back and then forward again just to keep up with the timelines that it's uh, that the narration is introducing and reintroducing you see a couple of scenes twice mm, from different, different perspectives angles, yeah. and i think a, it, it's yeah. pretty safe to say that quentin tarantino really likes this movie i think it's <laughs> extremely safe to say that i think he was actually name checking it on reservoir dogs as well okay, like okay. those things like city of fire city on fire sure. yeah, and yeah. the killing were yeah. the huge influences yeah. on this film i mean yeah, definitely yeah. um and that's how i actually came to it Okay. Um, it's one of those things being a, a huge uh, Quentin Tarantino fan at the time it was all happening mm-hmm. was, you know, he'd give these interviews and start throwing out the names of these films, which I'd never heard of, and you'd you know, madly them, rush yeah. this, you know, write them all down and seek them out, which is, you know, no greater gift that one film buff can give to another, That's I think. That's true, yep. Um, but, yeah, this is my all-time favourite film noir. I am such a really? geek for this film. And I feel like for for young people who feel like they wouldn't like old movies, I feel like this is one they should try. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think a lot of the time sometimes young people struggle with older cinema, especially black and white cinema, but I think the pacing of this is something that would really sort of work. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, it, it still feels very vital, very now, and the the versions that are in circulation are beautiful. The cinematography is so crisp; it's just, yeah, it's absolutely stunning to behold. It's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous spectacle. So, yeah, absolutely send people the way of this film. Good pick, Paul. Thank you. I'm very happy. This is my first retro pick. <laughs> Yay! Um, so, The Killing is currently streaming on Stan, and it's also able to rent on i rental buy on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube Rentals. Three triple. Ah. Our next film, Top End Wedding, the new Australian comedy using the surefire method of deploying the word "wedding" in its title. 
It's always Australian films always <laughs> hit when you put wedding in the it's title. True. <laughs> Almost failsafe. Uh, is written by its star, Miranda Tapsell, and helmed by her Sapphire's director, Wayne Blair. Uh, Lauren and Ned, Lauren is played by Tapsell, Ned by Gwillem Lee, who was last seen playing Brian May in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, they're engaged, they're in love, and they have just ten days to find Lauren's mother, who has gone AWOL somewhere in the remote far north of Australia, reunite her parents and pull off their dream wedding. Culture clashes and hilarity ensues. Or does it? I'm not sure because I didn't get to see this. Sally, if this were a potential groom, would you find this to be a Prince Charming or a Mr Wrong? Uh, a Prince Charming, for sure. Uh, when I hear anything to do with rom-com, I kind of... It's just it's not my thing. I, I'm not a fan of the rom-com at all. So I went into this kind of thinking, oh, you know, it might be nice enough, but... This movie was something else. It was... I absolutely adored it. I, it was such a special, special film. The way that they've taken, you know, rom-com conventions that we all know exactly what's going to happen, but then added something to it that I think is so unique. I think this... I could be wrong. Please correct me if I am anyone. But this could be the first Indigenous rom-com that we Ooh, have. Interesting. What's the rate? Well, Radiance was three women... Yeah, okay, brand new day, musical, yeah, with some like straight elements. up, yeah, but straight up rom com. I think that this, like I said, I could be wrong. Please let me know if I am. Email us on the Facebook or something. But um, <laughs> <laughs> email us on the Facebook. email us on the Facebook. Tell us if I'm wrong. But um, we're not Gen Xers. <laughs> just the you know the shots of Australia. There, uh, it was. It's so incredibly beautiful. Uh, so special the way that it looks at. The removal of, you know, culture from generation to generation and things becoming, you know, just the the whitewashing of Indigenous culture in this country and how that gets taken away from, you know, certain people and being able to reconnect with that. There was the use of um, Indigenous language in this film was incredible. Um, Really nice to see. I found that really, really moving. Um... I think people could learn a lot from the way that this movie was made if you're looking at making something that is like comfort food like this movie is. It's done in such an incredible way. And I think Miranda Tapsell said that she said that she wanted to make a rom-com because that's her favourite genre and she feels like an expert on that genre. And you can tell that, yeah, she really is because it is sort of ticking all those boxes. And, you know, for someone like me that isn't a big fan of the rom-com, this was amazing and Kerry Fox was brilliant in it too. Oh, yeah, Kerry Fox is... She's a bit of a caricature, but even her role in this assumes some relatable dimensions and, yeah, it is quite a winning turn in the mm. end yeah i mean not not everyone in this film is uh the the, the character is, is not always that three-dimensional but mm. it's all of it serves the greater good which is to put on a hugely entertaining warm-hearted and actually really funny um uh, feature film in which um i think it, aboriginal australia and white australia um you know it's almost utopian how harmonious this is it's something here that well greater australia could really learn an awful lot from 
And, and it's not too contrived in that respect either, which is why I think it works. Yeah, I felt that as well. I felt like it didn't seem to be trying to be a message movie. It just was, and it worked really well. S- sounds like it does what good genre should. Yeah, it do- yeah, it really does. Well, it's just that it also uh, embraces Aboriginal Australia in a, in a fashion that has a lot of authenticity to it. And it's, as you mentioned, Sally, there's language. Um, but there's also locations and culture. And for me, what, what, something that matters a lot is, is queerness. Mm. This is actually quite a queer film, even though it's celebrating the most heteronormative of institutions, which is marriage between here, a man, and a woman. Uh, there's a whole lot of the fabric of here, Tiwi Island society, uh, where we have sister girls uh, present. Uh, we have one extremely fabulous character yeah. who <laughs> transports um, our protagonist to the church. Because of course, our trips must be made to the church. But there's all sorts of depth uh, to this. There is some richness. There are some things that are very you know, that are quite superficial, but. For example, we don't really meet his family. They're there, but they they don't have any roundness to their characterizations. But really, he's pretty secondary to the the love of Australiana in this film of of a certain sort that's probably pretty alien to a lot of Melburnians. It certainly is to me. I've never mm. been anywhere near far north Queensland. Yeah, it is to me as well. Yeah, but it's very attractive. Mm-hmm. And the top end um, there is the. For me, it was actually just a learning experience. Grasping that top end doesn't necessarily just mean what you might call the mainland. It actually can encompass the islands offshore. And it's Tiwi Island, isn't it? Very specifically, yeah. Yeah, but all that... um, I suppose, is it more Northern Territory than far North Queensland? This is how much of an Mm. ignoramus I am. Yeah, more Northern Territory. Yeah, it's... uh, God, it looks stunning on screen. Oh, that one shot where they, I think we're on the boat my god absolutely breathtaking and i was just thinking god i can't believe that this is in the country that i live in and i've never been there i feel like such an <laughs> idiot <laughs> yeah like this is this is the the greatest blessing the tourist bureaus for that part of the country could have had for a long time they didn't even have to get a, a twit like daryl summers involved <laughs> uh, uh, what joy for all australia <laughs> The only thing that that would have made the movie better is a cameo from Daryl Summers. (laughs) The the words a twit like Daryl Summers should be mentioned more often. Well, gladly. Though it would be a bit off topic ordinarily. But, yeah, this this is... I I came out of this film buzzing. Mm. It's a a, a really well-earned high... Um, and I, I think this film should go gangbusters at the box office for all the right reasons. Yeah, I think that too. And I, I kind of I have a good feeling that it might. Yeah, you feel yeah, it in your I waters. I can feel it in my waters. <laughs> and yeah, it really should. It's so deserved. It's just a really nice piece of comforting cinema that, yeah, you do come away from feeling good. And there's a few good turns also, from supporting characters. Also, well. I had a good yeah. cry did in you have as a good well. Cry? I did. Yeah. Well, was it? And the repeat hearings of that particular yacht rock classic that... Um, <laughs> oh, what was it? If You Leave Me Now. Yeah, if yeah. You Leave Me Now. Yeah, yeah it was that. I yeah. went in the cupboard and I cried when I got home. I considered playing that tonight. <laughs> yeah, thank you for not playing that, Paul. Otherwise, we'd all have had to gone and found a pantry to lock ourselves in and have a good Terry interlude <laughs> on our lonesomes. Yep. It's so very sad. I see it's got my Sapphire's crush, uh, Shari Sevens, as well. It was... Yeah, well, there's a terrific supporting... 
character, uh, a cast of characters, and uh, Elaine Crombie, Ursula Jovich. Uh, Hugh Higginson was the man I was groping about for his name, who plays the the pantry, the pantry dwelling. Dad. <laughs> the pantry dad, yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, um, uh, yeah, I found this moving, but most of all, very, very funny. Yeah. And and I, it's, it's the film Australia needs right now. I think that too. And and that's the thing. It's, you know, it had the, mis- some would say misfortune, some would say counter-programming of coming out a week after Avengers Endgame. But there's the thought that it will have legs and might... Uh, mm. Oh, surely. Well. And, I mean, these those films couldn't be more poles apart, exactly. one would think. And... <laughs> Surely people could only go and see Avengers so many times in that first week before surely they're over it. <laughs> uh, am I wrong? I mean, really? <laughs> really? No, hopefully this will be a playing for weeks and weeks to come and will gain some real mm. traction because it absolutely deserves it. I, I think it's a, a lot more... I mean, I really enjoyed the Sapphires, but I think this is actually a more successful film. Yeah, I, I, same. I like the Sapphires as well, but this film is just really head and shoulders above it. It's a joy. Mm. Well, there you have it, folks. The film Australia Needs Top End Wedding is screening now in select independent cinemas. You're listening to 3RRR. Art of Justice is a panel discussion exploring the intersections of art and the justice system. Featuring leading new media artist Bindi Cole Chocker and contemporary artist Ching Ching, alongside community art experts and a local magistrate discussing how progressive justice solutions are often the most creative. Art of Justice, 6pm Tuesday, May 14 at Neighbourhood Justice Centre in Collingwood. Entry is free. To book, head to neighbourhoodjustice.vic.gov.au. NJC sponsoring Triple R. A new exhibition at Heidi Museum of Modern Art celebrates the 35-year collaboration and achievements of artists Janet Birchall and Jennifer McCamley. Temptation to Coexist brings together works from the 1980s to the present and reflects Birchall and McCamley's ever-expanding repertoire of mediums. From painting and sculpture, photography and printmaking, to neon light and textile works. Temptation to Coexist, Janet Birchall and Jennifer McCamley at Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Triple R Sponsors. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Cerise Howard, uh, Sally Christie and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discuss Three Faces, which is currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, The Killing, which is currently streaming on Stan, and Top End Wedding, which I've been informed is screening at both all good independent and more than a few multiplex cinemas as well, uh, Village and Hoyts. So make an effort to go out and catch that one. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand. Check out the songs we played on the triplerr.org.au um, Plato's Cave page right now. Subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week we'll be digging into Agar, The Night Eats the World and our retro title, Jack Hill's Spider Baby or The Maddest Story Ever Told. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast and Carl Chapman for panelling the show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.